We are in John chapter 3, verse 22, and we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. Title of the message, Q&A of John the Baptist, obviously standing for questions and answers of John the Baptist. Um, some of you have heard what's in the news. Maybe you learned that the lottery ticket that everybody's talking about was purchased in Illinois, so too bad for you. Um, nobody's claimed it yet. Just so you're aware, I used to buy lottery tickets back in my college days when I was young and foolish. And I would like to say that I quit all forms of gambling. That was the only form I did. But I quit. I'd like to say I did it because it was spiritual, but it wasn't. I had, I've always had a love for cars. I still do. If I see, if I drive by a piece of property and there is a car in a field with grass growing up through, and you can see it up, growing up through the car, I, I think, oh my goodness, it could be running. And I, I have a sickness. <laughs> so I had, as a college student, young college student, I had a, two vehicles. I'm one person. What college student, student needs two vehicles? But then uh, I had a kid call me, a college-age kid uh, that wasn't in my seminary. He said, my parents bought me a new Toyota Tacoma. They told me that I have to get rid of my 66 Impala that you love so much. And I, I hate it, but I told them that I would only want to sell it to you. And I, I told them, I don't have the money. I have two cars. I don't need one more. But I do love your car. I can't afford it. He called me back and said, my parents are willing to work out payments. But, and, and it was crazy because there were two ladies that were clearly car collectors that drove by and they took the cardboard off the front of the car and they, were, they tore it up as I was walking up to the house. Like, oh no, they're gonna buy it out from under me. But the thing that preceded that was I was putting fuel in my Plymouth Fury. I already had a nice sports car, but um, I was putting fuel in it and I was at the gas station that I had bought lottery tickets before and I thought, I can't afford that car. I want that 66 Impala, but I can't afford it. So I said a little selfish prayer. Don't think your selfish prayers will get answered like this. But I said a selfish prayer. God, if you will allow me to some way to purchase that 66 Impala, I'll never buy another lottery ticket again. So it wasn't a spiritual decision. It really wasn't. It was a selfish thing. He allowed me to have the car. And so I, uh, he also took it away. But... <laughs> I've never bought a lottery ticket again, and, and I should have known already gambling is not, it, it's, it, it encourages greed, and it's not biblical. Christians shouldn't be doing that. So if you don't know, you might want to see what the Bible says concerning gambling. But I'm still going to talk about it, because I put this other thing up behind me. Um, it's less than the big one everybody's talking about, but did you know that in Canada, it's set to expire August 13th, so it's just a couple of weeks away. They're gonna, it's going to expire. Somebody has the winning lottery ticket for $15 million, and they haven't claimed it in almost a year, and it's about to expire. Wouldn't that be weird if that, that real big one everybody's talking about, if it goes by and expires? It could, because it's done it several times. It could. But it, wouldn't it be even weirder if you were actually the purchaser of, and it, it wouldn't be us, that we purchased the, the Canadian ticket because remember COVID had all these overreaching uh, restrictions and they still do, but 
there, were, there was even extreme uh, when Americans weren't, United States citizens were not allowed to cross the border. You remember that timeline? That's almost killed a city. You should look it up. There's a city most of us don't know about that goes up into Canada, and it's just like the tip of Canada sticking down just above the San Juan Islands. There's a little piece, it's Fort something. Anyway, it's a little town that no shipments were allowed to go there. What's that? Point Roberts, that's what it is. And it's almost dead. But anyway, we couldn't buy lottery tickets back then anyway. But wouldn't it be weird if that Canadian on August 14th or sometime after August 13th discovers, oh, that was mine. Can you just hold that and let that pickle in your brain for a little bit? I want to get back to it as we go through our text. John chapter 3 Verse 22 is where we pick up today. You can read it up behind me if you'd like. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. We don't know exactly where this is. There are people that have opined about this over the years, and I can't come up with a conclusion, so I'm not throwing a chart up for, to show you. But let's, let's peel it back anyway. So after this, after what? After this conversation with Nicodemus, remember? He was talking about baptism, and he mentioned born of the water and born of the Spirit. And it was fascinating the way that all played out, and especially since Nicodemus was a leader amongst the Pharisees. And, and it kind of pulled us in, if you'll remember, where we felt like we were also part of the crucial conversation. Maybe God was speaking to us and saying, I know what's going on inside of you. And... Um, you need to step up your game. That's kind of what he was telling Nicodemus. So after this, and some people say, well, he wasn't talking about baptism, born of the water and born of the spirit. <laughs> baptism, it's in the context. It just continues. It'll continue with our text today. But I want you to notice something about the text. It says Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized We've already entered in to a controversial verse. You'll see this play out as we read on. There's more verses that support this. Verse 23, and we're going to read verse 24, which is like a parenthetical note. Now, John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. We've entered into a, another controversial one. We'll deal with that first one as we look at the support verses that underscore it. But we've also entered into another controversial one, which is not exactly always fun. One of the controversies is nobody seems to know where this place is. So we don't know where Jesus was. John the Baptist was in a different place, and we can't locate it on a map either because we don't know where it is. Lots of opinions, but nobody knows. But the, the real controversy, though, is verse 24, the parenthetical note. Why did God inspire John to write this little parenthetical note? This is before John was put in prison, because Matthew's the one that writes about the imprisonment. Well, let me show you a chart up behind me. You'll see the timeline. I don't know if you can read it from where you sit. And this one's, I just picked one off the internet. So it's, it's easier to do that than to, it wouldn't be as quality if I took a picture of it out of a commentary and scaled it down. So you can at least see this one in more quality. 
Mark was the first gospel writer. If you remember, when Mark wrote his gospel, it was a crazy timeline of events. Remember Saul and Barnabas got into, Paul and Barnabas got into an argument about taking Mark. You remember that? And the argument was Mark wanted to travel with them, but Paul was like, no, he's a flake. He left us. When things started to get rough, he, he was gone. So Paul was very critical of Mark, John Mark. Barnabas said, I'll take him. And those two got in such a heated discussion, they split over this, and the gospel got spread even better, which was amazing. But later we find that Mark, John Mark, was traveling with Paul on a regular basis, and in fact, he wrote about him saying how invaluable he was to him, even while he was in prison. So something changed. Mark won over Paul. Maybe he learned what Mark was actually doing, because Mark, when he left them, he went down to Jerusalem and he wrote his gospel. God was inspiring him to write the first gospel. That's important, wouldn't you say? <laughs> While Paul and Barnabas were going through the hard, or Paul and Silas, uh, Paul and Barnabas were going through the hard stuff. I said Silas, it was Paul and Barnabas. But while they're going through the hard stuff, Mark was writing a gospel inspired by God. There's nothing wrong with that. And then Paul would later write a bunch of the New Testament books. I, I can't help but wonder if Mark and him talked about that. God's inspiring you to write. Well, he inspired me to write too. That's kind of a cool combination of characters. And then you see the other timeline of events. John would have been the last gospel writer, which means he knew more than likely that Matthew would have wrote about John's imprisonment. There's the reason for the parenthetical note. Gospel writers would someday have all of the accounts God inspired John to make sure everybody knows this is before John himself had questions. That's pretty cool that God would go to that extent and explain that. So they're questioning, they're going to question John the Baptist. I gave you a heads up. We go to verse 25, the next verse. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Some theologians think it was Nicodemus. It doesn't make sense that it was, because he just named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Pharisees, so he was a Jew. But why wouldn't it just go ahead and name him? It just did. So we don't know who he was arguing with, but we do, do know that it was a particular Jew. And they're arguing over ceremonial washing, which is an Old Testament practice of the Jewish people. Verse 26. They came to John and said to him, this is after they're arguing, Rabbi, respectful teacher, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. We're continuing the controversy about Jesus baptizing. Now, the reason why I say it's a controversy is because in chapter 4, we're told something completely different. I'll, I'll give you a heads up. We'll go ahead into that. We'll look at it in more detail next time. But John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. 
Although, in fact, this is verse 2, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. That's why it's controversial. Because you got in chapter 3 saying Jesus baptized a couple of times, and that people are getting upset about it. They're jealous going to John. Hey, he's baptizing, and there's more people. But the reality is Jesus didn't physically do any of the baptizing. He actually was having his disciples do it. But that's referenced as he's baptizing because he's the one that's facilitating it. Those of you who were here on a particular uh, Sunday that I couldn't be here, um, if you'll remember, I, had, I was going through some, a medical thing, and I couldn't be here, so it wasn't enough time to have anybody prepare a message, so y'all participated in a message from Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I think it was a guest speaker that was speaking that particular time, but Kyle Eidelman is the main preacher there right now, and Sunday after Sunday, they're baptizing people it's regularly. It's off to the left-hand side. It's a, it's a clear baptistry. And it happens after the message, usually, during communion, with a communion song being played, a very excellent, high-quality um, worship service. And you get to witness a bunch of baptisms happening. And Kyle Eidelman gets the credit. Yeah, Kyle Eidelman, he's, he's baptizing, you know, hundreds of people a year. No, he's not. He's, he's not. I mean, he is, but it's other people. It's the father and the mother of the children or other people that are doing the baptizing. He's not doing it. It's the same thing with Jesus. He's not physically doing the baptizing. And it's probably the same reason that I believe that we don't really have, we don't really have conclusive evidence on these artifacts when you travel to the Holy Lands and people say, this is where it happened, right here. Don't really know that. I mean, yes, they have plaques, and yes, they have markers, and they'll have tour guides, and you can pay them the money for them to tell you this is where it happened. But they really don't know. I mean, it's old. Maybe it happened here. It's, it's, there was a guy that did a test. I remember when I walked into the New York's, I think it's St. Peter's Cathedral. Might have been St. Patrick's. I get them confused. But I went in there, and I remember there was a store inside and I walk into the store, and they had a bunch of pieces of the cross of Christ that you could buy for a pretty hefty amount of money. And apparently, many years ago, a guy traveled the world, and he added up the cubic inches of the wood that was currently on sale as he traveled the world. Uh, of the, these are actual pieces of the cross of Christ. And it was enough to like almost build an ark. I mean, it's just, uh, obviously, this, these are not all from the cross of Christ. I think it's probably the part of the sovereignty of God that he doesn't allow us to find these kinds of things because we might find ourselves committing idolatry. And, and I mean, people get a little nuts with this idolatry stuff. Maybe you've seen uh, people in the news or on a talk show that found Jesus on their toast. You know, you can buy it. It's not cheap. But it's quite possible that that's the reason. In fact, you'll notice if you've ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I mean, think about it. This is the first letter to the Corinthians written by Paul. And right off the bat, what does he deal with? I thank God I didn't baptize very many people. Y'all are dividing. 
One says, I follow Apollos. One says, I follow Paul. That's, that's the problem. That is a real problem. Is people oftentimes will esteem a godly person too much. I love Paul's statement, follow me as I follow Christ. Because he also said, I don't do the things I'm supposed to do. And the very things I know I'm not supposed to do, I keep doing. So Paul knows that even he messes up. So he says it this way, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what I would say to you. Follow me as I follow Christ. When I deviate, which I don't plan on doing, and I don't, definitely don't plan on doing it in front of you, that's embarrassing. But when I deviate, don't follow me there. When I make a mistake, which I do on a regular basis, um, it's best that you don't follow my mistakes. Follow me as I follow Christ. That is so wise. And that's how we're supposed to see our leaders. And this plays out actually in our text, which is amazing. Love how God's providence plays out in this. Verse 27 picks up. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. And he's talking about spiritual things, spiritual and good things. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. So he's telling them, remember, I told you I'm not the one. There is one who comes after me. We remember this too. It continues all the way to verse 30. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, this is significant on, on different levels. First of all, on the level that he's talking about the bride and the bridegroom, because this language has been exclusively used amongst the Jewish people when referring to God as God and the one that's to come. God and his people, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and Psalm 45 all reference this. And the fact that John's doing this, they're the Jewish people who know their scriptures, they're, they're hearing this, especially since there's a Jew there arguing with them, a particular Jew, about ceremonial washing. So they know about these practices of the Jews. They know these passages. Wow, he's really putting some serious backing behind Jesus. He is the Messiah, not me. So at a time when it would be very, very uh, easy to let your ego run away, John does exactly what he should do. And, and if you think about it, these two are cousins. He has to step back and let Jesus have the glory that is due the Messiah. He has to look past the physical. He is the one. William Barclay said it this way, We would do well to remember that it is not to ourselves that we must try to attach people. It is to Jesus Christ. It is not ourselves we seek the loyalty of men. It is for Him. 
And John the Baptist did such a good job. It continues, verses 31 to 33. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. He's referring to himself. The one who comes from heaven is above all, referring to Jesus. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Wow. He's taking it and st- making, he's stepping it up a few notches. You need to pay attention, he tells the people, to Jesus. He's the one. I mean, John the Baptist started the whole baptism thing. Now Jesus has a bigger crowd following him, and John the Baptist's followers are getting jealous for their leader. And he's saying, no, 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 no. This is supposed to be this way. I was setting the stage for him. He's putting himself in the background. It's time for me to step aside and him to be lifted up. And we wrap up our text here. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So he takes it even to another level. You have to accept him, or you're eternally doomed. He's the one who saves you. Focus on him. It'd be real easy to be distracted, though. I mean, John the Baptist is a charismatic personality. John the Baptist is clearly God's man for the time. He's got a huge following. He's very respected and admired. And some of his following is, they're right there. They've gone to him and they're worked up. And you know how this plays out, don't you? When a group gets worked up and they all talk about it, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And as they get to him, they are very worked up. And we've got to tell him he's going to do something. He doesn't do what they expect. He tells them, you got it wrong. I I am doing this to lead you to him. I would imagine that would feel kind of deflating to some of them. But you got to get past your emotions. It doesn't always feel good to be told you're wrong. In fact, it usually feels bad. Most people like, they prefer not to be told they're wrong. They prefer to stay wrong and look right than to be corrected in front of anybody. But here they are being corrected And now if they will simply listen to their leader, who's pointing them to Jesus, they will be corrected and they will be right. Wouldn't you rather be right in the end anyway? It's just that correcting part that's not comfortable. (laughs) And that's what happens sometimes when you're in church on a Sunday morning. It happens sometimes when you're in the car listening to the radio preacher who's not just trying to make you feel good. He's trying to actually have a crucial conversation based on Scripture with the listeners and hopefully pull them closer to Jesus. It might happen sometimes when your spouse is saying something and you just don't like it because you don't like to be told, but they happen to be right (laughs) this time at least. Or it might happen from the mouth of a child, as I've said before, and you know this very well. 
Too many times, you know, the, the worldly parent responds with, it's okay. It's fine. Or, when you become an adult, you can do this. Instead of, you know, probably um, it'd be better if I didn't do this in front of you because it's wrong. I've got to do better. Thank you for bringing it up. I will do better. Very few parents will do that. I mean, Christians, you'd think, would do it. But I think even we Christian parents struggle with that sort of thing because it doesn't feel good to be corrected. Okay. What have we learned? Let's go through five things. Jesus didn't actually baptize people physically himself, but he had his disciples do it. That is a very good practice. There are some churches, though, that don't allow for that. The priest or the preacher, the pastor, whatever the title, must do the baptizing. He's got to, in fact, he's got to be the one that does the sacraments. Within the prison environment as a chaplain, I have to honor those different denominational beliefs. And I can tell you, it's been really weird during COVID because I tell people, I can serve you communion. Has it been blessed by the priest? No. So if you don't want to do this, you don't have to do this. But I'm, biblically, I can serve you communion. It's your call. It, it gets a little weird sometimes. And it, I've even met pastors in Christian churches who don't say the pastor has to do all of it, but they're going to be the one that does the baptizing. They will be the only one. And I don't get it because that's definitely not what the guy did who began the practice, John the Baptist. Even Jesus didn't do that. Because our scripture says, in fact, he didn't actually do the baptizing. I want to be more like Jesus, so if I can, I would prefer somebody else do the baptizing because it doesn't matter who's doing the baptizing. What matters is that somebody submits to the lordship of Jesus and demonstrates they're starting their new life in Christian baptizing. Wouldn't you say that's what the main thing is? Yeah, and now live your life for Jesus. You started over, started new, that's what you do. Second thing. Jealousy can keep you from drawing near to Jesus. And I've seen that play out right here in this building. And I don't know how it works. I mean, I don't know the details because I wasn't given the details. But people have such a commitment and loyalty to their radio preacher, their favorite author, or the preacher they grew up with, or whatever they were told at some point in time, Sunday school, parents, or whatever, and no matter what the Bible says, they are going to be loyalty to, loyal to that other thing, that other person, that other institution, that other preacher, or whatever. And they don't want to hear what the Bible says. I say, well, what it says this right here, I don't care. I know what I believe. Wow. Because it makes somebody look bad. That preacher that I've always believed that author that I've always believed. What about that guy on TV? I mean, there's a lot of people that listen and pay a lot of money to support that ministry. So, I mean, you're talking thousands, tens of thousands, or whatever the personality you want to choose. Can't be wrong, right? Because there's so many people that follow it. 
I don't know. I think I'll go with this book. I don't have to worry about protecting somebody else's doctrine. My Bible and your Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. For if you do, you'll save yourself and your hearers. Well, what if you don't? This losing becomes part of the equation. Okay, third thing. Dependence on a strong, charismatic leader of God can mislead one away from Jesus. Did you notice in our text that they were very worked up because they were so loyal to John the Baptist and they missed his message? He already told them, I'm not the one. There is one who comes after me that is greater than me. It's him. They didn't listen. They were too dedicated to him and they were blinded by their own opinions. And we're all wrapped up in loyalty to John the Baptist rather than God. Four, genuine godly humility coupled with commitment can lead others to Jesus. John the Baptist took this moment where his ego could have been fed. This can happen to you too. Somebody in the church could come up to you and say something about somebody else in the church, and you can just theoretically put your arm around them. I'm not a huggy guy, so I'm just a figurative <laughs> speech. Huh. You theoretically put your arm around them and make them feel better by agreeing with them without even hearing what the whole story is. You hear their perspective. And they, they're gossiping about somebody else in a negative way, and you just put fuel on their fire, and you just enable them to continue gossiping and to continue judging and being critical of somebody else unnecessarily when you could have easily just simply risked them being upset with you by saying, well, what did you say to them when you talked to them about it? Well, I didn't talk to them. I'm talking to you. <laughs> The gossips don't go directly to the person like the Bible says. And hey, if you've got a problem with somebody, you go right to them. It's easier to go to somebody else and build, a, you know, get your people supportive and you feel better about yourself. You don't have to deal with the fact that you might be wrong. But it's, remember, it's better to be corrected than to stay wrong. John the Baptist did the right thing. And we can learn from this example. They came to him and in a group... And he could have easily said, I see what you're saying. I'll talk to him. <laughs> but instead, he did the right thing. You guys are wrong. You're off base. You're thinking wrong. Let me help you out here. And he risked the possibility of creating some enemies because people don't like to be corrected. They like to look right rather than be corrected. And the fifth thing, God does answer people through his servants. The people came to question him. After there was some quarreling, a Jewish person was apparently instigating the quarreling about ceremonial washing. And then they came to John the Baptist to settle something. That guy over there. And John answered the questions so well. And the reality is, God answered their questions through John. I want to be that guy, don't you? If somebody comes to me 
and has a question, I want to be like somebody that I mention every now and then, and he doesn't even know I mention him. I haven't talked to him in years, but there's a man by the name of Terry McGrew who was a very late convert to Christianity in his life, at least to being totally sold out to Jesus. He was just an average man, but when he gave, if you had a question for him and he gave you an answer, he would do it like this. I think you'll find your answer right there in James chapter 1, verse 19, don't you? And I would always feel like, oh, I'm supposed to know this. <laughs> then he would quote it and pull me out of my feeling bad for not knowing it. I want to be that person. If somebody has a biblical question, a question that relates in any way to God's plan, which most of life does, I want to be that person that answers in a way that's pleasing to God. I answer, that God answers them through me. I want to be that vessel, like John the Baptist was. He did such a fine job. I want to emulate that, don't you? Somebody in the family calls on the phone and says, I'm going through this thing. Don't you want to be God's answer to them through your words, pointing back to His will? Yes. Somebody says, I've been praying about this thing. I thought I should talk to you about it. Well, don't you want to be the one that answers, that might answer that prayer through that conversation? And don't forget, and I could have this as a point up here, but sometimes God is trying to answer your prayer through a vessel. You're talking right to Him. And you know, I've been praying about this, and I don't know what God wants me to do. And then they say, well, you know, it says this in Psalm chapter 50. And you're listening, yeah, I know, I know, but you know, I'm still wondering what I'm supposed to do. You just were told what you're supposed to do. Listen. And sometimes he answers in crazy ways. Uh, I've, I've, too many times I've found myself in the woods all alone, struggling with something I'm praying about, and he just answers it right there. Like, oh, oh. Through nature unraveling right before me, ah, oh, should have known. But God does answer prayers through servants. Can we go back to that little thing that you thought I did that wasn't a rabbit trail, wasn't anything to do with the message? So you remember, there's $15 million before taxes awaiting somebody out of Canada. Vancouver's where they bought it, by the way. Yeah, I have to say that there are times when I'm way up in Clallam Bay that I kind of would love to imagine that it just floated across the Strait of Juan de Fuca and it ends up in my yard. Hey, I did. <laughs> there it is. But so $15 million, somebody, somebody bought that trying to win and they've had it and they don't know it. They are wanting the winning number. They have it. They want to win. They have it. They just don't know. Because they're too preoccupied with something. Don't know. We don't know. Is it possible that some of us are longing for something, but our judgment is clouded because there's something else in front? Each time I showed you this, you didn't know. But right behind this, let's make it go away. There's a scripture from last week. I want to read it to you again. John chapter 3, verse 16 and following. This is in the context of what we just read. You got to know. 
This has been here all along. We read it last week. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word that is so encouraging to us. It's so motivating and it's so convicting. God, sometimes you have crucial conversations as we just simply read your word and I should have just known. should have known. And sometimes, Lord, you hit us over the head with that radio preacher, the televangelist, or the book we're reading, or sometimes right out of Scripture, and sometimes on a Sunday morning in church from the preacher, and sometimes not even that, Lord. Sometimes you do that in the middle of communion, in the middle of our prayer, in the middle of a song. Sometimes we just walk into the building. Being in the presence of like-minded Christians who want to serve and please you, God, your Spirit moves us and Thank you for that. As you are trying to pull us closer to you, we do want to be close to you, Lord. We, we want you to see by the way we live our lives that we love you. Do you know that, Lord? If not, help us to learn how to show you. In Jesus' name, amen.